You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's just gone 8 p.m. You're tuned into Marcus Sahaba Online Radio. This is Current Affairs and the week that was with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. Jazakamala for joining us uh, coming up in the show tonight. The ICJ, the International Criminal Court, throws out Ukraine's case against Russia in The Hague in the Netherlands. Bomb Bomb Bibi has approved a plan for the fake state Israel to assume military control of Gaza in what he calls a transition period. Vladimir Putin says the Russian aircraft carrying Ukrainian prisoners of war that was shot down recently was destroyed by a U.S. Patriot anti-aircraft system. Is not real, is truly a Nazi nation, nation, not just a Nazi state, with a massive 72% of Israelis demanding the starvation siege against Gaza must carry on, with eight convoys blocked from entry to the besieged enclave. NATO threatens to go to war against itself, threatening to destroy Hungary's economy if the nation-state blocks Sweden's entry into the bloc. Volodymyr Zelensky is at war with his top general, who is refusing his request to resign. And Nancy Pelosi makes an idiot of herself and America as she tries to dismiss massive protests against the Gaza genocide. Moving on to our top story today, the United Nations top court, the International Court of Justice in The Hague, has mostly rejected Ukraine's claims that Russia was financing terrorism in eastern Ukraine, saying only that Moscow had failed to investigate so-called alleged breaches. Kiev had accused Moscow of being a terrorist state whose support for pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine was a harbinger to a full-fledged 2022 war. It wanted Russia to compensate all civilians caught up in the conflict, as well as victims from Malaysia Airlines Flight MH17, which was shot down over eastern Ukraine. But on Wednesday, the International Court of Justice tossed out most of Ukraine's pleas, ruling only that Russia was failing to take measures to investigate facts regarding persons who had allegedly committed an offense. The ICJ rejects all other submissions made by the Ukraine, it said in a statement. The case predates Russia's 2022 military campaign in Ukraine. The ICJ will decide on Friday whether it has jurisdiction to rule in a separate case over that war. The court said that only cash transfers could be considered as support for alleged terrorist groups under the terms of the International Convention on Terrorism Financing. This does not include the means used to commit acts of terrorism, including weapons or training camps, the court ruled. Consequently, the alleged supply of weapons to various armed groups operating in Ukraine fall outside the material scope of the convention, said the court. Russia was also in the, in the dock for alleged breaches of an international convention on racial discrimination due to its treatment of the Tatar minority and Ukrainian speakers in occupied Crimea. Here the court found that Russia had not taken sufficient measures to enable education in Ukraine. The case started in 2017 and has seen lengthy exchanges in the court's Great Hall of Justice, plus thousands of documents submitted to the judges. It is part of a strategy of warfare waged by Ukraine against its adversary that has also seen it drag Moscow to court over maritime law and alleged human rights abuses. During hearings of the case, Alexander Shugin, Russia's ambassador to the Netherlands, 
accused Ukraine of blatant lies and false accusations, even to this court. Top Ukrainian diplomat Anton Koryanetyev retorted that Russia was trying to wipe us off the map. Beginning in 2014, Russia illegally occupied Crimea and then engaged in a campaign of cultural erasure, taking aim at ethnic Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars, he said. News coming out of Israel today is not real. Is not real Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has reportedly discreetly approved a plan for Israel to assume military control over Gaza in what he's calling a transition period that is supposed to lead to the reformation of the Palestinian Authority and the eventual realization of a form of Palestinian statehood. According to a 31 January report by the Jerusalem Post, this several-stage initiative was drawn up by a group of businessmen, uh, unidentified and anonymous, with close ties to the uh, crime monster. Sorry, to the Prime Minister. Stage one involves the creation of a comprehensive Israeli military government in Gaza to oversee humanitarian aid and assume responsibility for the civilian population during a transition period, the Israeli outlet writes. Stage two will see the formation of an international Arab coalition, including Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco, the UAE and Bahrain and others. This coalition will be a part of broader regional normalization agreement back in the establishment of the new Palestinian Authority, it adds. Mm. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco, the UAE and Bahrain. According to the report, this plan will allow officials, neither Hamas-affiliated nor linked to the current Palestinian Authority and its president, to inherit Gaza's administration from Tel Aviv. It adds that the plan will allow Israel to carry out security operations in Gaza, just as the 1993 Oslo Accord allowed for Israeli operations in occupied West Bank. The subsequent phase will depend on how well Gaza is stabilized, or what is not real views as stable, and how successful the newly reformed PA will be. It will include widespread reforms of Palestinian Authority facilities in the occupied West Bank, including education. It will also include the formation of a mechanism for what it calls terror management. The report goes on to say that if this stage pans out smoothly for two to four years, Israel will then recognize the delineated Palestinian state within the Palestinian Authority territories and consider transferring additional non-settlement-requiring lands to that state. It also says that the initiative falls in line with Washington's vision for Gaza and the region. The report makes no mention of East Jerusalem, which the PA has for decades demanded as the capital of any future Palestinian state. It comes one day after Israeli, is not really Defense Minister Yuav Gallant said that Israel plans to directly occupy Gaza after the war. Netanyahu has previously said that the reoccupation of Gaza is not on Israel's agenda, but that Tel Aviv would have to maintain indefinite security control over the Strip after the war. Russian President Vladimir Putin has revealed that the shooting down of the Russian IL-76 aircraft with a number of Ukrainian prisoners of war on board, as well as its crew, was carried out by a Patriot U.S. system. The plane was shot down by the U.S. Patriot system, 
and this has already been established by the technical examination, and so far we do not know why this was done. But Ukraine may want to provoke us and push us to do revenge against it, Putin said in a meeting with members of his electoral campaign team, according to Sputnik. Um, Putin pointed out that the Western media was trying to hide the story of the plane crash. News coming out of Is Not Real today. Half of Israelis oppose a deal between Is Not Real and the Palestinian resistance factions, which would see Israeli prisoners of war released from Gaza in exchange for thousands of Palestinians detained in Israeli prisons and a 45-day ceasefire, a new poll has found. Published by Israel's Channel 12 today, the poll revealed that 50% of Israelis oppose a deal under which Israeli prisoners are released in exchange for a 45-day ceasefire and the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli prisons. The poll stated that 35% of Israelis support such a deal, while 15% do not have a specific answer. Of those who voted for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition, 12% support the proposal and 75 are against. This rises to 53% who support such a proposal among the opposition. Alarmingly, alarmingly, 72% of respondents said the entry of humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip must be stopped until the Israeli prisoners are released, with only 21% saying aid should continue to enter Gaza. If the Israeli elections were held today, the survey found that the National Unity Party, headed by Benny Gantz, would win 37 of the 120 Knesset seats compared with the 12 it currently holds. That's the ultra-right wing here getting even more support. On the other hand, the Likud Party, headed by Netanyahu, will drop from the 32 seats it now holds to 18 if elections were held today. The Channel 12 found that if elections were held right now, the parties opposing Netanyahu's coalition would obtain 73 seats, while the party supporting him would obtain only 47. Currently, the parties supporting Netanyahu have 64 seats in the Knesset. It's necessary to obtain the confidence of at least 61 representatives in the parliament to form a government. Calls have increased in recent weeks to hold early elections. These have been rejected by Netanyahu, who says no ballot can be held during times of war. Well, while the EU pledges support for the war in Ukraine and pledges support for the genocide in Gaza and pledges support for the genocide in, in Syria, uh, it turns out it's becoming so belligerent that now it wants to turn on against itself against its own members. It's now threatening to destroy the economy of Budapest. The EU today said it will sabotage Hungary's economy if Budapest blocks fresh aid to Ukraine at a summit this week. After a confidential plan drawn up by Brussels that marks a significant escalation in the battle between the EU and its most pro-Russian member state. In a document drawn up by EU officials and seen by the Financial Times, Brussels has outlined a strategy to explicitly target Hungary's economic weaknesses, to imperil its currency and drive a collapse in investor confidence in a bid to hurt jobs and growth if Budapest refuses to lift its veto against aid to Kiev. Viktor Orban, Hungary's premier, has vowed to block the use of the EU budget to provide 50 billion euros in financial aid to Ukraine at an emergency summit of leaders on Thursday. 
If he does not back down, other EU leaders should publicly vow to permanently shut off all EU funding to Budapest with the intention of spooking the markets, precipitating a run on the country's foreign currency and a surge in the cost of its borrowing, Brussels stated in the document. Well, that's the first time that Brussels has actually sort of uh, openly admitted uh, what its modus operandi is in dealing with um, people who don't agree with it. Uh, This sort of um, activity you know, usually um, uh, takes uh, is the grist of the mill for conspiracy theories. Um, in fact, uh, African countries have long accused uh, Europe of following this kind of policy towards them. Now we see that e- the EU has taken the gloves, it has taken the veil and everything off, and it's going in barehanded, bare-knuckled, Ben knuckle fighting against uh, Hungary that has dared to not join the, the common prejudice, and that is bomb, bomb, bomb Russia. Russia is the enemy. Uh, uh, said uh, Mustaba Rahman, Europe director at the Eurasia Group, uh, what is Europe telling Viktor Orban? It is telling him enough is enough. It's time to get in line. You may have a pistol, but we have the bazooka. The document declares that in the case of no agreement in the February 1 summit, other heads of state and government would publicly publicly declare that in the light of the what they call unconstructed behavior of the Ukra- of the Hungarian prime minister, they cannot imagine that EU funds would be provided to Budapest. Without that funding, financial markets and European and international companies might be less interested to invest in Hungary, the document says. Such punishment could quickly trigger a further increase of the cost of funding of the public deficit and a drop in the currency. Hannes Boka, Hungary's EU minister, told the Financial Times that Budapest was not aware of the financial threat, but that his country does not give in to pressure. Hungary does not establish a connection between support for Ukraine and access to EU funds and rejects other parties doing so, he said. Hungary has and will continue to participate constructively in the negotiations. But in a sign of the rising pressure on Budapest to strike a compromise, Volker said Budapest sent a new proposal to Brussels on Saturday uh, specifying it is now open to using the EU budget for the Ukrainian package and even issuing common debt to finance it if other caveats were added that gave Budapest the opportunity to change its mind at a later date. The document produced by an official in the Council of the EU, the body that represents member states, lays out Hungary's economic vulnerabilities, including its very high public deficit, very high inflation, a weak currency, and the EU's highest level of debt servicing payments as a proportion to gross domestic product. It lays out how jobs and growth depend to a large extent on overseas finance that is predicated on high levels of EU funding. A spokesperson for the Council of the EU said they did not comment on leaks. Brussels has wielded its financial leverage against member states before, such as Poland and Hungary over rule of law concerns and Greece during the Eurozone crisis. But a strategy to explicitly seek to undermine a member state's economy could mark a major new step for the bloc. In the meantime, 
The EU's favorite little mascot, Volodymyr Zelensky, has asked his most senior military commander, Valery Zoluzny, to step down on Monday, but the popular general refused, triggering, triggering speculation he will be dismissed instead. Tensions between the two have been simmering for weeks amid the failure of Ukraine's summer counteroffensive, but the suggestion that Zaluzny would be forced out nevertheless came as a shock to many. Oleski Goncharenko, a Ukrainian opposition MP and ally to the general, uh, told newspapers he understood that yesterday the president asked Zaluzny to resign, but he declined to do so. He blamed personality clashes for the conflict. Personally, I think this is a bad idea. There are not fundamental issues between them, but Zelensky's office has been concerned that Zaluzhny has been making political and not military statements, Goncharenko said. Expectations that Zaluzhny could be forced out immediately surfaced on social media. A couple of hours later, the defense ministry responded curtly, Dear journalist, we immediately answer everyone, no, this is not true. Assuming that everybody reading understood what was being referred to, and that was that the Zaluzhny would be forced out of his position. It's not clear that the matter will end there. Goncharenko said Zelensky could dismiss Zaluzhny and replace him, a process that requires the support of the defense minister after assessing the public and international reaction. The most likely replacement would be Korilya Budanov, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, responsible for covert operations against Moscow. Budanov was touted earlier this year as a replacement for Oleski Reznikov as defense minister in another protracted, protracted dismissal saga that began with similar bouts of speculation. It is not clear what an alternative military strategy would look like given Russia's entrenched front-line positions, while Ukraine's most urgent crisis is not the battlefield, but persuading the United States Congress to approve a $61 billion military aid package that would secure a year or more's weapons supply from the U.S. Democrats on Tuesday opposed Republicans of accused Republicans of being on the brink of deliberately collapsing a deal linking aid to Ukraine to a tightening of immigration policy at the U.S.'s southern border in order to help Donald Trump's election campaign. The French President Emmanuel Macron, meanwhile, urged European leaders to accelerate aid to Ukraine in a speech to the Swedish Military Academy, saying the costs of a Russian victory are too high for all of us. He warned that there is no more security framework and architecture on our continent if there is a Russian victory. The a Ukrainian counteroffensive that began in June has failed to break through Russian lines. Amid criticism, the attack was spread across too many axes, but the real dispute between the president and his top general appeared to be political. The Ukrainian general is the most popular figure in the country, other than the president and his high standing. And that has irritated Zelensky's office, particularly as the politician has been considering whether to hold fresh elections currently suspended under martial law. In a rare interview, interview, Zaluzhny told The Economist at the beginning of November he believed the war was at a stalemate and called for fresh help from the West. But a few days later, Zelensky dismissed the downbeat assessment. Everyone gets tired no matter their status and we have different opinions. But it's not a stalemate, Zelensky said at the time, 
adding that, that newly arrived Western F-16 fighter jets could yet lead to a breakthrough. Speculation has also swirled in Ukrainian media for months that Zaluzhny could be uh, the only viable leader to Zelensky for the presidency if fresh elections to, were to be called while the war continues and the general were to run. And in the United States, the United States government is trying to make sense of all of this. They, they believe they, they fight in a moral war in Ukraine and uh, the opposition party is doing its best uh, to oppose it in a very, what they uh, presume is a very unpatriotic un stance. There they are, trying to support Israel. And the Israeli state, after that six million Jews were killed by the Nazis in World War II, and look what happens. Ordinary Americans come out onto the streets and oppose Israel and accuse it of genocide instead. Not only that, but they accuse uh, top American politicians like uh, Genocide Joe and dum-dum uh, Donald Trump, as well as Nancy Pelosi, of aiding genocide. So now old Nancy Pelosi believes that it's time for her to come out and uh, explain to the American people and to the wider world in general exactly what's wrong with these people. But I'm afraid that sometimes there's a very thin line between vile demagoguery and pure idiocy. Pelosi has straddled both during an appearance recently on CNN where she smeared protesters who've been demanding a ceasefire to end Israel's slaughter of Palestinian people in Gaza. Um, new... new um, New Public Radio reported that the former House Speaker said without offering evidence that she believes some protesters are connected to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Hmm, you know, making such a bland, uh, idiotic statement uh, about one person, Donald Trump, might work for a few years. But when you try and complain that hundreds of thousands of people protesting in your streets have got personal links to the Russian President... I'm afraid people are going to find that very hard to swallow. Says Pelosi, for them to call for a ceasefire is Mr. Putin's message. Make no mistake, this is directly collected, connected to what he would like to see. The same thing with Ukraine. It's about Putin's message. I think some of these protesters are spontaneous and organic and sincere. Some, I think, are connected to Russia. And I say that, having looked at this for a long time now. Hmm... Well, there you go. Nancy Pelosi can see things most people can't. Uh, one thing she most certainly can't see is dead Palestinians. And not certainly one of those people who can go around saying, I see dead people. Like Congress as a whole, Pelosi refuses to acknowledge that so many Americans are, pro what? That so many Americans are protesting because the Israeli armed forces have engaged in mass murder in Gaza for more than three and a half months. And an inconvenient truth is that polling shows a large majority of people in the U.S. already favor a ceasefire. Grasping at straws, Pelosi evidently hopes for some political benefit by casting blame on Russia for how Biden's deterrence to Israel is met with strong public opposition and erosion of support for re-election. Pelosi is hardly unusual on Capitol Hill, unfortunately. Bipartisan loyalty to Israel has been the political reflex with few exceptions. 
but Pelosi is notably servile to the Nazi state. Shortly before starting her second stint as House Speaker in January 2019, Pelosi was recorded on video at a forum sponsored by the Israeli-American Council as she declared, I have said to people when they ask me if this capital crumbled to the ground, the one thing that would remain is our commitment to our aid. I don't even call it aid. Our cooperation with Israel, that's fundamental to who we are. Such attitudes have fueled the massive flow of U.S. weaponry and other military aid to Israel, which has been greatly boosted since Israeli forces began methodically killing, murdering, and blowing up thousands of civilians per day. Well, I suppose it's hundreds of civilians per day immediately after the Hamas attack on October 7. I said retired uh, Israeli Offensive Force Major General Yitzhak Brick in late November. All our missiles, the ammunition, the precision-guided bombs, all the aeroplanes and bombs, it's all from the U.S., he added. Everyone understands we can't fight this war without the United States, period. When Pelosi smears people who are expressing immoral objections to the continuing carnage financed by U.S. taxpayers, she's tacitly echoing what then-Vice President Joe Biden said in 2015 at the annual Israeli Independence Day celebration in Washington. Biden said, As many of you have heard me say before, there were, were there no Israel, America would have to invent one. We'd have to invent one because Ron Demma, Israel's ambassador, is right. You protect your interests like we protect yours. The interlocking interests of powerful pro-Israeli forces like AIPAC, the uh, American-Israeli um, uh, funding group, and overall U.S. foreign policy have led most recently to the extreme rhetorical and military support for Israel's ongoing mass murder in Gaza from Democrats in the White House and both parties in Congress. In this context, Pelosi's channeling of tactics honed by the lines of Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn could not be too surprising. And Pelosi seems to be channeling Richard Nixon too when she told CNN she wants the FBI to investigate the financing of ceasefire protesters. But there's also another key aspect of Pelosi's nonsensical yet calculated smear effort. Biden's poll numbers have kept dropping most recently while so many Americans, especially of those whose votes you need this for, find his support for the Gaza slaughter repugnant. Grasping at straws, Pelosi evidently hopes for some political benefit by casting blame on Russia for how Biden's deference to Israel has met with pub strong public opposition and erosion of support for re-election. Yes, her gambit is ridiculous, but at a time when the administration is revving up for a new Cold War with Russia, instead of genuinely seeking diplomatic solutions for the Ukraine war and the rampant nuclear arms race, Pelosi decided to throw down a handy demagogic gauntlet to tar ceasefire protesters. Like President Biden and so many others in the political establishment, Nancy Pelosi cannot imagine breaking with the murderous Israeli government and pursuing a foreign policy of peace instead of non-stop U.S. efforts to dominate as much of the world as possible. As the war in Gaza continues, miserably and unabated, 
Nearly 27,000 people killed so far. Over 66,000 are injured. And there's about 10,000 missing people. The garnage continues. Israel is, uh, is doing nothing to take action against people who advocate genocide, who come out with genocidal statements. If you look at, the, at those reports that were coming out, doing a survey, how many people support uh, starving the Palestinians to death? Just that, that call for no aid convoys into Gaza is in actual fact a genocidal statement. Calling people together and asking people and giving publicity to it like uh, the so-called surveys that are done in Israel. They say 72% of Israelis support the continuing starvation of uh, Palestinians. That's genocidal statement. Is Israel taking action against its news agencies? Is Israel taking uh, action against the last weekend, the... Um, the, the um, the conference held uh, about Israelis taking over Gaza once they pushed everyone out. There's another genocidal conference held in the full public view, and Israel is taking no action against it. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what the International Court of Justice has to say in a few days' time when um, that report by the Nazi state is due to be handed in. If that report is not handed in, and if it is of insufficient quality, the court is going to be forced into a corner and it's going to have to make another ruling. And every time it's making a ruling, it's increasing the risk that other Western politicians who continue supporting, like Nancy Pelosi, continue supporting Nazi Israel, could well find themselves at an international tribunal, much like the Nuremberg trials that sentenced the Nazis to death. Yes, the International Court of Justice sentenced the Nazis to death. So, quite conceivably, from a, a theoretical point of view, not from a necessarily practical uh, legal procedure point of view, Benjamin Netanyahu could find himself sentenced to death one day for genocide, as could genocide Joe Biden. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting indeed. I'm sure it must be having some influence in terms of um, dampening enthusiasm for making public statements at least uh, egging on the Gaza genocide. In the meantime, egging on the Gaza genocide is one thing, but arming the Gaza genocide is something completely different. And that arming is continuing. It's nice to see that uh, action is being taken in the, United, in the United Kingdom to prevent the government uh, to continue sending weapons uh, to Israel as it continues making uh, such genocidal statements as, we, as we've outlined now. Now there is a full investigation going. We need more of these, and hopefully there will be more coming, uh, into specific incidents, because investigations into specific incidents are going to be the grist for the mill. 
that is going to come down to proving beyond reasonable doubt that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. I suppose most of, most of us can just see it, but rules of court require specific, specific allegations. They require specific facts um, there because these need to be then tried and tested and then the court can needs to come to a decision, a confident decision after it has interrogated the facts. So this is what is happening at the International Court of Justice. Up until now, uh, the allegation of genocide was made. The court had to come to a, a conclusion as to whether or not there was feasibility to that accusation made by South Africa. Oh, and it still gives me a warm feeling knowing that it was South Africa that went there and did that. May Allah Ta'ala bless this country. Oh Allah, we've got such no hope leaders. There we, we just don't seem to be going anywhere forward. And if we're going forward, it's very, very, very um, rarely in a very straight line. Oh Allah, bless our country. And bless our country with good and wise, just leaders on the path of Haq. Oh Allah, bless us with Muslim leaders. And if you're not going to give us Muslim leaders, oh Allah, bless the country with Hidayat. And if you're not going to bless everyone in this country with Hidayat, oh Allah, then at least make the people of this country like the Muslims, love the Muslims, and support the Muslims. I mean, well, uh, anyway, the, regarding that, um, holding to account uh, the uh, war manufacturers who arm in the genocide in Gaza, reports coming out of Britain are saying that Israeli forces most likely used a 1,000-pound bomb when they hit a compound housing British doctors working for the UK and US organizations in southern Gaza earlier this month. A United Nations investigation has found. Its results released this week, UN investigators said the early morning strike on 18 January probably involved an MK-83 bomb guided by a GBU-32, a type of kit that turns free-fall bombs into precision-guided missiles. So there's no mistake or accident when it blows up something when it lands. The new revelations will increase scrutiny of U.S. and U.K. arms sales too is not real, as it is, po as it is possible weapons or components made in both countries were used in the attack, arms control experts and lawyers said. The U.S. State Department and U.K. Department of Business and Trade both told journalists they keep arms export licenses under continual review but would not comment specifically on whether the incident had impacted weapon sales or transfers. The UK's Medical Aid for Palestine and the US-based International Rescue Committee, headed by UK former Foreign Secretary David Miliband, have condemned the attack which injured several of their team members and a bodyguard and severely damaged the residential compound. You know, when you have a former Foreign Secretary David Miliband heading up an organization operating in Gaza, you just know that it's like so completely under government control. But of course, Miliband would be in a position where now our doctors have been bombed. If I don't go out and support them, immediately all of my rank and file, my grassroots members are going to turn against me and demand my resignation. So this is where you have a man of the system, 
who's, who's now supposed to go and uh, present a complaint against the system, trying to present that uh, claim uh, in as an inoffensive ma- uh, manner as possible. He will try as a go-between between the system and the grassroots people who are suffering the bombing. He's going to ensure that the bombing of the grassroots continues while he maintains his position and he gives expression to the complaints while ensuring that the bombs continue being supplied to Israel. That's basically David Miliband's position today. It's a bit like... Um, it's a bit like... Um, Keir Starmer being asked to hold Rishi Sunak accountable um, to report to Parliament as to what his next military adventure is going to be. Because the message is, doesn't matter what you come to Parliament for, if you want bombs for Israel, you will get it. Everything and more. That's a one-party state in the United Kingdom. That's a one-party state in the United States. You can vote for Joe Biden, you can vote for Donald Trump, but either way, the Palestinians are going to die. I know, I know Americans and, and, and I know, you know, I've got a lot of British friends, mate. Um, a lot of uh, the returning exiles uh, coming back to South Africa in the 1990s know some of them extremely well. I know their parents even, even their families, you know. Muslims married to Hindus, Hindus married to, oh, all kinds of things. You you get a situation where Rishi Sunak is now the the, the prime minister of Britain. You know, it's 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 like he's like so non-Indian. It's not funny. You know, all of these exiles and their children return to South Africa. Hmm. And you know they 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 love like you know they love the British working class. They say they are essentially good hearted. Well, it doesn't matter how good hearted you are, mate. It doesn't matter how friendly you are in a pub. I mean, what really counts, mate, is how you hold your government accountable. If you can't do that, then don't come and tell me how nice you are. Well, they do. You know, they really feel an affinity for the Labour Party. My opinion about the Labour Party was after the invasion of Iraq because it was done with the Labour Party in government with Tony Blair, the leader of the Labour Party, as the Prime Minister. And it led to a war that resulted in genocide. Over one million Iraqis on a conservative count died as a result of that war that was built on false premises of weapons of mass destruction that were never found, that were never built, that had never been there in the first place. While accusing other people who say that America is lying of being conspiracy theorists, they, they, they undermine, undermine critics. Um, what is his name? David Cook. The foreign minister was assassinated by his own government because he wanted to reveal that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Imagine, they killed their own minister. The Labour Party killed its own minister when he wanted to reveal the truth. Now, you know, after World War II and that genocide there, the Labour Party was disbanded. At least Germany had the decency to disband the uh, the, uh, Nazi Party. But after the Iraq invasion, the Nazi party 
I'm sorry, the uh, the Labour Party in the United Kingdom continued operating. Now you could say, well, it's just a corporate veil, you know, or you know, you 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 could just throw it away, and another thing would pop up in its place. You see, the thing is, if you take an organisation like the Labour Party and you ban the Labour Party and you ban all of its funders and you ban all of its backers and supporters, all of the people in the background, you throw them all out and you start with something new, something different, and you start with grassroots. Even if you do follow the corporate model of registering as a corporation in order to be a political party, you go to your um, a registrar of companies and you registrar, register as a company, a not-for-profit organization. And uh, and you form another whole new party. You still have to go through the process of re-establishing links with funders and donors and backers and supporters. And while that is done in a, an environment where the grassroots is the one that is determining uh, the form and the content and the direction, it's very difficult for funders to start being able to manipulate as you can in a mature little corporation like the Labour Party. The Labour Party should have been thrown out and all of its backers and all of its supporters who subsequently threw out Jeremy Corbyn because he supported the Palestinian issue, accusing him of anti-Semitism and installing Keir Starmer as the uber-Zionist in Britain. Now he is supposed to be holding Rishi Sunak accountable. Hmm. You know, accountability is not going to happen. The Labour Party should have been thrown into the dustbin after the Iraq war. It has not thrown into the dustbin. And now it is doing exactly the same thing again. You know, it doesn't take much foresight to be able to see, to be able to see that, yes, this is going to happen. It's like taking an umbrella for, with you when you go out of the house and you see it's, it's, it's um, overcast and the thunder is uh, shaking the roof and the, the, the lightning is breaking out all over the place. If you take an umbrella with you because you think it's going to rain, people can't call you a prophet. I can say it's, it's just an obvious and reasonable conclusion to come to. Those reasonable conclusions have not been uh, arrived at in the United Kingdom, however. The Labour Party continues. Keir Starmer is, is not in opposition to Rishi Sunak. He's his best buddy. But Britons continue pretending that they're Democrats and they have a democracy in Britain. While, uh, while they, you know, they go and march against the war. Um... There were differing uh, accounts as to how many people were marching. Um, the biggest number I saw was, um, I think it was half a million uh, on, on one day. Uh, but in the opposition to, to the Iraq war, over two, two consecutive weekends, a million people marched against the Iraq war. Two weekends, a million people each weekend. Two million people, the biggest march has ever seen in the United Kingdom. And what did Tony Blair say? He turned around and said, more people voted for me in the election. I've got a bigger mandate. You know, marching, marching does and can bring about change, but only under specific circumstances. 
And what is the public to do when they have marched and they have marched, much like Algeria marched against, um, uh, against their corrupt government? Hmm? For like two years, every single weekend, people right across Algeria were marching in their hundreds of thousands, protesting against their government. What happened? Nothing. So, I mean, the, the question needs to be asked, what happens if you march and you maintain peaceful protests and your government still does not pay any heed or regard to your complaints? What do you do? Anyway, I suppose um, that's a question for another day. News coming out of Britain, as I say, say UN investigators uh, say an early morning strike on 18 January against uh, UK doctors in southern Gaza probably involved a guided missile, a guided bomb, a free-fall bomb that became a precision guided, that broke up into precision guided missiles. They're very fancy, these bombs. The new revelations hopefully will increase scrutiny of US and UK arms sales to Israel as it is possible weapons or components made in both countries were used in the attack, according to experts. Um, uh, the UK's Medical Aid for Palestine and the US-based International Rescue Committee are now both seeking further answers after the bombings forced the suspension of the life-saving medical work the team was providing at Nasser Hospital, which ran out of food anesthetics and painkillers a few weeks ago and is currently besieged by Israeli forces. The organization said in a joint statement, we need to know the facts as to why this airstrike took place and receive assurances of non-reoccurrence. We further demand that our colleagues in Gaza, their families, and all civilians and humanitarian workers in Gaza be protected from further attack. The Israeli military gave assur assurances to the UK on 22 December that the coordinates of the site in the town of Al-Mawasi had been marked as a protected humanitarian site. An Israeli military spokesperson asked about the attack, said it follows international law and makes feasible precautions to mitigate civilian harm. I think that, that that answer is the stock answer that was drawn up about five years ago. The UK Foreign Office declined to answer whether Israel had provided any explanation about the why the deconflicted site had been bombed. The department referred inquiries to comments in Parliament made by Foreign Office Minister Andrew Mitchell, in which he said Foreign Secretary David Cameron and British Ambassador in Israel Simon Walters had raised their concerns. The department further declined to say whether or how Israel's use in the bombing of an F-16 jet, which had been acknowledged after earlier Gaza wars to almost certainty, contained UK-made components. How has that impacted the arms export licensing advice it gives to the Department of Business and Trade? Well, the department declined to say. MP Brendan O'Hara, the Scottish National Party's foreign affairs spokesperson that is virulently opposed to the Gaza genocide, uh, said that, that under the government's own criteria, weapons may not be exported where there is a clear risk they may be used in violations of international law. O'Hara said last week's interim ruling by the International Court of Justice in the Gaza genocide against Israel should mean an immediate embargo on arms sales to Israel. He said the Westminster government must stop prioritizing trade objectives over the lives of Palestinians and focus on persuading Israel to abide by the International Criminal Court of Justice ruling, he said. 
seeking comment from uh, Labour Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy. Uh, journalists received no response by time of publication. Foreign Office advice and arms sales to Israel has been under increased scrutiny after legal and human rights groups filed a legal challenge against the government in the High Court in December, attempting to stop UK sales to Israel for its ongoing campaign. Earlier this month, a court document filed by the government in the case revealed that Cameron recommended that arms sales to Israel continue despite serious concerns in the Foreign Office that is not real had breached international law in Gaza. Siobhan Allen, a lawyer for the Global Legal Action Network, one of the groups challenging the government, said the concerns raised in that document can now only be more acute in the face of an incident of such obvious concern as this. The government can no longer continue its pretense of turning a blind eye to the fact that its own laws require the immediate suspension of arms licenses, especially as the International Criminal Court criminal, as the International Court of Justice found that there is a plausible case that genocide is occurring in Gaza. A database compiled by the campaign against the arms trade using publicly available information shows that in the first six months of 2023 alone, four licenses were granted to UK companies worth at least £186,000 to export components for combat aircraft to Israel which the critics said could potentially include F-16 components. Emily Apple, uh, CAAT's media coordinator, said the UK government's lack of comment on the impact of arms exports speaks volumes. Under its own regulations, it has to suspend arms exports when there is a clear risk they could be used to commit war crimes, she said. It could not be any clearer that this is happening. Well, uh, with that, I'm afraid uh, we've come to the end of the show. How well, uh, may Allah Ta'ala bless you this weekend, and uh, may He give you uh, plenty of opportunity for rest and to recharge your batteries, and uh, may we all return to work uh, coming Monday, unless, of course, you don't follow um, uh, that kind of routine. Uh, May we all return to work on Monday refreshed and ready for a new week. Jazakallah, Jazakumallah for joining us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.